I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And once again, good morning. You're stretching there, Michael? <laughs> you got it. Uh, well, <laughs> it is the first day of December here in our Southside studios. Always good to start the show with a big yawn. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. I'm awake. You're awake now? <laughs> Today, we are joined by the author uh, of... The Collected Letters of Flannery O'Connor, Good Things Out of Nazareth, The Uncollected Letters of Flannery O'Connor and Friends. It is out now from, oh, it's out now from Convergent, Dr. Ben Alexander. Ben, are you with us? Yeah, good morning. How you doing? Good morning. How good morning, you doing? Ben. Where, ben, where are we calling you from? I didn't even uh, take a note to look. I'm on a little barrier island uh, between Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and Charleston. I had to get away from... Uh, the crowd of the beaches um, in one of these places where the hurricanes hit. Oh, dear. Well, that sounds, it actually sounds lovely if you're on a barrier island. Is there, there's a big snowstorm, though, coming, isn't there? No, no. We, we dodged it. Uh, uh, we got one two years ago. Uh, unbelievably, ice on a barrier island, but <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't had any since then. That's amazing. Well, today we're talking, again, uh, with the editor, and, you know, you've also written some of the book as well. You've written the introductions to this stuff um, about... Flannery O'Connor's previously uncollected letters. Dr. Ben, can you talk a, a little bit, first of all, about what drew you to this project uh, to start with? Well, uh, what happened is I, was, I became a big fan of the first collection of letters published in 79 called The Habit of Being, and I knew Sally Fitzgerald, uh, who edited that collection. And I, I had heard that there was other letters that she didn't include, some of which did not make the cut, and so... Several years ago, I made my way to three archives in the space of about four days and kind of fell out of my chair in terms of what I had found. And I madly photocopied uh, the letters that, uh, that I found. I found a lot of them at Duke and some archives at Duke. The same sweltering June afternoon, I found some letters of Flannery O'Connor's teacher at the University of North Carolina, and of course I found some others at uh, the Milledgeville Archive, and that, that was the genesis of what uh, originally became uh, would become good things out of Nazareth. What about Flannery O'Connor's work, however, in particular, drew you to want to look at her letters? I mean, obviously she's uh, <clears throat> one of America's greatest authors, but what personally drew you to her as a subject? T- trying to teach Flannery O'Connor's letters, uh, stories. I have a 40-year career. I just retired from full-time teaching. Trying to, to teach her stories to students, particularly outside of the South, where most of my teaching was uh, oriented, uh, they, were, they were fairly clueless. Uh, they didn't laugh at some of her jokes, and when you don't laugh at O'Connor, there's some issues, some problems going on. So I had to find another way Particularly, I was in some uh, rather pious Catholic schools teaching at that point. So I found the letters, and the students immediately gravitated to them. And that's how uh, I really came to the letters as really a, a way to introduce, you know, her fiction, which deals with murders by the side of the road and 
pleasant things like that, gorings in the pasture, uh, hangings in the attic. So I had to find a way to make that a little bit more palatable to sheltered students. And so the letters did that. I can't imagine not laughing to good country people. Well, uh, I, 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 I tell you what happened about 2005 when students became more and more addicted to screens. Uh, 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 that, that was the great line of demarcation. Um, even today, though, you will get uh, some people, most students are convinced that uh, a class has got to be boring. And then when you, when you teach a story about an atheist stealing, uh, I mean, a Bible salesman stealing an atheist's wooden leg and some of those priceless lines in there, you will, you will get some laughter uh, even today. But 2005 was, was I would say, it was a big uh, date when I noticed there was a fall-off where people, uh, people wouldn't even laugh at Huckleberry Finn. And there's some tremendous jokes in there, you know. So uh, I believe there's uh, a prize given for uh, humor in the name of Mark Twain, so I think you're correct. Right, right. Yeah, yeah it's the an annual Mark Twain Award. That's right. Well, one of the things that I learned, I, I'm a huge O'Connor fan, and I'm, I'm from the Midwest, not the South, but I'm also Generation X, so I didn't grow up on screens. I grew up on books. But one of the things I found extraordinarily fascinating is that good man is hard to find as as we know is also a you know you were talking about there's murder and hangings and wooden leg stealings etc but it's also based on the seven deadly sins if i interpreted the letters correctly and there's also i th- was it the violent barrett away that had uh influence from dante yeah i think that's one, one of the things that i had been working long before i edited these letters on uh o'connor i i, I taught o'connor and Dante back-to-back for many, many years, and, and that, that was sort of a providential uh, arrangement of classes, and I began to see that there was a real connection between the two because, the, uh, uh, in a way, some of O'Connor's stories are a function like Dante's Inferno. They're very startling, graphic, violent, in-your-face type scenarios, which is what you find in the Inferno, startling, in-your-face punishments and things like that. And so I began to look into the letters, and I found ample warrant uh, in a number of places for her, uh, uh, that is O'Connor being rooted in Dante. And one of the things that really uh, surprised me and my editor at Random House was that that first collection, um, A Good Man is Hard to Find, and other stories, she conceived of as a cycle. Uh, of the demonstration of the seven deadly sins. Now, you don't have to teach it that way. Uh, Most people do not teach it that way. They're not aware of it being that. But O'Connor conceived of it that way as as a short story cycle demonstrating different kinds of deadly sins. Yeah, you blow my mind with that. I've reread it it for the show. I reread A Good Man is Hard to Find. And I thought that was so fascinating. And then... You also made a reference, I'm sorry, the letters made a reference to uh, Joyce's portrait of an artist uh, relating to Wise Blood. Can you talk a little bit about that, too? Well, I discovered that with, uh, um, again, I I taught Joyce uh, in a great book course, uh, and I also snuck O'Connor in. Uh, 
and I I said, well, actually, O'Connor is is making fun of Joyce, uh, making his atheism look uh, kind of ridiculous with a southern accent, uh, a guy preaching about the church without Christ from the hood of his car, you know. And then I tested it out on O'Connor's uh, dear friend who is uh, deceased, uh, Bill Sessions, who was a friend, and he said, he told me, he said, Ben, you're exactly right. He says that this, this is, uh, I, had t- I have talked, I talked with O'Connor, and she, she respected Joyce, but she didn't like the, the way he treated religion. Uh, but she did respect him as a craftsman of the English language. And he said, so Wise Blood, in a way, is a parody of Portrait of the Artist. And this is a, uh, this is unexplored territory. Uh, it hadn't been done much by the critics. And I'm hoping my, uh, my, you know, the collection will encourage that. You know, that brings up something I did want to discuss with you. Flannery O'Connor was obviously a very devout Catholic, and, and that Catholicism uh, runs through almost all of her work and through these letters. Can you talk a little bit about O'Connor's religion and how that influenced, first of all, how she saw the world, but also how she wanted to position the uh, punchline, so to speak, of her stories? Well, as I tell friends, she's a great Catholic writer because she's not, she doesn't try to be overtly Catholic uh, or pious. She, she, and she learned this from her teacher, Carolyn Gordon, who's, uh, who's featured in the collection. That is to say, if you, if you write something beautiful and powerful, like if you're Dante and you write something beautiful and powerful, and you tell a powerful, overwhelming story, the religion is going to take care of itself. So, in a sense, uh, she decried uh, pietistic Catholic fiction. You know, she had nothing but contempt for a certain sort of pietistic writers like this. And you'll see in in the letters there's quite a bit of criticism of Cardinal Spellman's book, which is a very pious book about how to uh, be a saint. You know, she wasn't writing about saints, and she didn't really care about writing about saints. So uh, in order to really uh, convey her Catholic message, she had to get the Catholic, overt Catholic elements out, which seems like an irony. Uh, but that's, that's the way she was taught, and that's why her fiction reaches way beyond religious people, and in some cases religious people uh, don't know what to make of the stories because they're not pious. Right. I, I also thought it was interesting in your letters, her fascination with Henry James, another layered artist uh, who hid certain things about his life and his morals in his writing as well. Do you think Flannery O'Connor was influenced by James's work, and, and what did she take away from it? She admired his craftsmanship. She, she admired anybody who was good, like, a, like you admire uh, someone who writes a, a beautiful piece of music. Uh, she admired uh, James because of his technical virtuosity uh, at, at another time she, not in my collection but in the habit of being she says when she read henry james it was like reading something in slow motion and so she she certainly didn't want to give that uh, impact in her stories because her stories are not slow motion but she certainly did uh admire his uh, you know his very nuanced textured sometimes uh exceedingly uh, arcane uh, methods of narration because it was it was so beautifully crafted. 
so she looked on him as, as kind of like like most people look on him as a master craftsman. How do you write a paragraph? How do you sustain a narrative? Uh, the, sort of the nuts and bolts of, of how to how to uh, tell a story. We were talking about education just a little bit ago. You said you were you taught for forty years. Uh, literature mostly. Literature and political science, um, and also what what's known as today. Uh, you know, I taught it in several great books programs, and uh, I I I am proud to say that I snuck. Uh, Flannery O'Connor into a number of great books programs as well as her colleague Walker Percy because I wanted to show students that existential literature did not have to be just written by Frenchmen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because there's a there's an essay that uh, Flannery O'Connor wrote. It's in, it's in the collected uh, stories and occasional prose. And the essay is titled, Fiction is a Subject with a History. And she starts out the essay talking about how there's a, there's a, a case about Steinbeck's East of Eden and it being up for ban because, because of its profanity. And uh, a little bit later in the essay, she says, uh, and I thought of this because when you were talking about 2005 as a line of demarcation, I don't know what year this was. It had to be late 50s, early 60s. But she says, uh, our children are too stupid now to enter the past imaginatively. <laughs> and, she, and she goes on to talk about how uh, some columnists at the time were, were defending students' demand that they not read classics or uh, literature from the 19th and 18th centuries before they read contemporary fiction. Um, and, and she said that, O'Connor said, that's ridiculous. Uh, y- you, wouldn't, you wouldn't ask a student in a physics class whether or not they want to learn, you know, the laws of physics thermodynamics what you know what do you what do you want to learn about physics um did you find that in your classes with well, your students I, I i've never I, I i kind of uh gave I, I never taught creative writing per se I, I i taught your routine american lit surveys i taught several seminars in o'connor and percy but i would give creative writing students a hard time because their their sense of creative writing was that uh I want to I want to reveal my feelings and my emotions and how sensitive I feel in this particular story, and I would pull an O'Connor on them. I said, you know, I'm not really interested in your feelings. I'm not interested in your emotions. Have you read Hamlet? Have you read Paradise? <laughs> Have you read Paradise Lost? And they would uh, stare at me in disbelief, because uh, one of the things you'll see in Good Things Out of Nazareth is that O'Connor was an old school. Uh, traditionalist, in a sense, she read all the all, from Sophocles to James Joyce, from Beowulf to Virginia Woolf. She read it all, okay, and she read the masters before she. And you can see this in her stories before she ever began to write her own fiction. And in a way, O'Connor is a is a challenge to a lot of creative writing programs today. Uh, like, uh, you know, this idea of uh, students reviewing each other's work, she thought that was a waste of time. Uh, she said, you know, the professor is there. It's a hierarchical model of instruction, and the professor is there to give you instruction, not some student who uh, wants to emote about how they feel about what you wrote. And so uh, she was a very much of old-school um, traditionalist or... Uh, in terms of education, 
And, and another thing she brought up, you know, she was uh, very, very uh, severely critical of public education and public education policy, which is somewhat related to the creative writing issues that she she would bring up in her letters, uh, the trends. And she, and in that way, she she was a very, very prophetic person. I wanted to ask you how you felt, or maybe give us a better explanation. On page 215, there's a letter from uh, Flannery O'Connor to Father James McCown. I thought this was great. She was talking about Updike's Rabbit Run, and she said, and I'm going to paraphrase the beginning, but she said, you know, basically if you skip the sex, it's because it's boring, but get to the, the core of the book, and it says that the book is the product of a real religious consciousness. I was really really surprised to read that in her criticism of Updike. And I don't know, that was something that I found really fascinating. I also did not know about her lengthy relationship with Walker Percy, too. But do you, uh, did, did you read anything or learn anything more about what she felt about Updike? He gets a lot of criticism now by the, the super lefties because there's so much sex in his books. Um, did you have anything that you could add to that? Yeah, uh, Updike is one of uh, several others, uh, including Hemingway and James Joyce. And what, what I'm arguing or presenting editorially in the book is that the conventional reading, uh, you know, the, the industry, industrial theory, the, the critical industry's reading of Updike and, and other people, uh, she, uh, she in, is, is going to require us to revisit these works. Because she, she thinks that too many writers uh, have been condemned because people cannot recognize, uh, recognize uh, that, that there's good writing even in a, in a writer like Updike, and that he, 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 he should not be just condemned because of, uh, of certain sorts of scenes that he includes in there. Uh, and so she is uh, forcing the reader uh, not to be zealous in judgment. Uh, and and one of the most refreshing things I think is is when you read O'Connor, she'll teach you that the sun also rises uh, should be read with a new uh, uh, attention to Hemingway's detail. It shouldn't be just uh, some sort of uh, book that's condemned because people go get drunk in Spain. You know, uh, it's a much more complex, refined read than that. And so she is. Just like Portrait of the Artist, uh, she is gonna she she's gonna tell you in that book that that needs to be uh, revisited too, and just not condemned out of hand by somebody who was uh, uh, you know mistreated at Irish prep schools in Ireland and was a victim of being Jesuits. Uh, that may be true, but that's no reason to condemn Joyce, and that there's a much deeper message uh, in the book. And so she is. Uh, what I'm saying is that she is. Uh, revisiting a lot of these writers who are on the edges, you know, uh, you know, branded as immoral or branded as too, uh, including too many controversial scenes, and she's saying, you know, you, 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 your pietism is is misplaced. You've got to look at the craftsmanship of these books, which I think is very refreshing. Well, speaking of which, we're going to uh, actually take a uh, quick break to have a reading uh, from one of these letters, and it, it is actually uh, her comments from 1952 on some of the works of, of Henry James. 
Readings, as always, are done by Ms. Shanna Van Volt this week. Uh, music is provided by Junius Paul. As always, we want to thank the International Anthem Recording Company. And we are speaking with Dr. Ben Alexander. We'll be back with him after this reading in about three minutes. O'Connor addresses an unusual topic for the modern short story. She also discusses the differences in prayers of believers. 5-12-1952 I was very pleased to be able to read this piece on James, and I have read it a couple times by now and with wonder every time. Since my critical training, such as it was, took place in a lump at Iowa, I've always felt it would be horribly gauche to voice any insights on a novel or poem that came via Catholic conviction. At the same time, I've thought that if a thing is art, it has to take in enough to be Catholic, at least with a little c, and that if it's that, it's penetrable by Catholic standards. But aesthetics is way over my head. I don't have enough of the proper kinds of words. Anyway, as I read it, I felt that this was surely the normal, natural way to react to Henry James. I mean, the way God and Henry intended. I get so sick of reading all this stuff about his quote-unquote accident. I am sure that you mean to dismiss it once and for all when you say, if he had been congenitally incapable of the marriage relation, he would have written books different from the ones he wrote. But this statement confuses me. I'm not very subtle. To me, it puts the emphasis back where you intended to take it off. I think he could have been physically incapable of marriage and still have written the books he wrote, because I don't think that that would have had anything to do with his talent or the grace that he had to write them with. I guess you mean that if he had been morally or emotionally unfit for the marriage relation, he would have written different books, which I can readily see. Maybe I'm being knocked over by a gnat here, but I wish you would enlighten me. I arrive at the obvious only after lengthy research. Most of the stories you used in it I hadn't read, but I did find a copy of The Great Good Place by Henry James, and I read it yesterday. I thought the vision was more one of purgatory than of heaven. It wouldn't have been much of a heaven to a Catholic anyway. Well, he didn't suffer there, the young man who took his place was a suffering figure, and wasn't there a kind of communion of saints atmosphere between them? Also, although the brother called it the great want met, it was only a great want for contemplation and regaining of the self. It wasn't the great want you think of as being satisfied in heaven. The presence of God is in the place, but it is experienced only vaguely and never seen. Wasn't St. Catherine of Siena rewarded with self-knowledge in her visions of purgatory, or rather when she felt she was actually there? I don't mean that James thought of the great good place as purgatory, but only that Dane was probably not as far up as he thought he was, or James maybe thought he was. I will certainly pray for Mr. Tate in the air, but my opinion is contrary to his. I have always thought converts' prayers availed more, else they wouldn't be where they are, and that born Catholics are only born Catholics because they would be too lazy to save themselves any other way. But maybe this only applies to the Irish. I am certainly indebted to you for letting me see this piece, and I think it ought to be a book. If Catholic novels are bad, current Catholic criticism is pure slop, or else it's stuck off in some convent where nobody can get his hands on it. Signora Mariella Gable ought to disguise herself as Ferdinand Potts and undermine the partisan review from inside. She could send the whole place to the devil. And that was a selection from the letters of Flannery O'Connor, written by Ms. Flannery O'Connor in 1952 about Henry James. It's... It, you know, it's an interesting thing. Her humor really comes through in these letters, Dr. Ben. Uh, I, I love her uh, take on uh, Irish Catholicism as someone that uh, spent most of his life uh, overseas uh, that had a particular uh, resonance to me. Can you speak a little bit about uh, O'Connor's use of humor in her letters? Because it comes off as very deadpan and dry, but also, uh, to me at least, uh, very knowing. 
Yeah, well, she, uh, she, she, she was the master in the letters as well as in her fiction of the uh, understatement. And at the same time, you know, like she, uh, <laughs> she could be very uh, overt, like she said. Uh, she, wrote, she writes Father, uh, a, a Jesuit, uh, Father Uri Watson, and she says, I've just read, uh, um, uh, she said, I've, I've just read Harper Lee, and, and uh, about an, uh, a novel about, um, uh, you know, and she, she says the novel is just not that good. You know, she, she said, I, I was put to sleep by it in Atlanta airport. So, I mean, she could be very um, uh, overt in her criticism. And if you read her prayer journal, uh, she, she talks about her sarcasm, and she says, she asked God to, to to make her more charitable because she she is the master of sarcastic lines, particularly from um, uh, academic types, you know, who 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 have this uh, superior uh, tone. You know, she there's that famous letter that she got uh, from uh, someone who said, "Why is the misfits hat black?" You know, like there's some huge meaning. And she said, because men like that wear black hats in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> she also slaughtered the name of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Didn't she call it something else in the letters? Too? Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think what that was. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, she, she made fun of the title, you know. Uh, um, uh, so, so uh, uh, you know, and here she was. But this is fairly typical. Uh, here she was, uh, you know, uh, well, she, she seemed, she, of course, was a, a contemporary of Harper Lee, and when she made fun of To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, the novel had not become the world classic that it has become. So she felt, you know, uh, kind of entitled to, to make fun of, uh, of contemporaries like that. And, you know, she also uh, talks about a novel by Carson McCullers, uh, who says it's the worst thing she ever read. Uh, so, um, you know, she 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 is... She, put it this way, she doesn't suffer fools gladly, uh, particularly when it comes to writers, but most of what she said, uh, you know, is, is, is very, very uh, correct. It just People may just not like the way she delivers the message. I have that uh, issue myself. Uh, page 90, there was a, a, there's a letter from Flannery O'Connor to Carolyn Gordon and Alan Tate. I'd never heard of Carolyn Gordon. I actually ordered her book about the Civil War. Um, there was a, a line where she talks about herself as uh, being the hidden character as the Bible salesman. She was comparing the Bible salesman to herself, and I thought that was hilarious, too. Yeah, well, uh, in a way, uh, one way you can understand, I, the way I teach uh, several of her stories, I think, uh, good country people, people is highly autobiographical, and I, I think one of the ways you can understand it, and I, this may be in our letters or something I intuited on my own uh, through discussions with some of my friends, uh, but the girl in, the, in good country people is actually Flannery O'Connor without religion. What would she be like without belief? Well, she'd be an atheist, one-legged philosopher because she was clearly had her own disabilities, you know. So she wrote that in there. And um, the impudent, impudent sarcasm and cruel, cruel comments of that 
uh, of that uh, one of Joy Hulga in that story is, in, I think, indicative of of how O'Connor herself would have spoken, or she not restrained by uh, something she had to work at, which is a charitable uh, dispositions to court, towards writers and critics that she thought were misplaced in some of their uh, attitudes and writing. It's uh, How to Kill a Mockingbird. I just found it. And yeah, How to Kill a Mockingbird. That's she it. says, the, the Atlanta airport is bad enough by itself, and I don't know how long that particular look could be expected to deaden you to it. So that's a great line. Yeah. But O'Connor was yeah. also sensitive to criticism. And in fact, uh, we do need to take a quick break here for station identification and to remember the folks that make this station possible. But coming out of the break, we're going to have another reading from one of O'Connor's letters. Uh, her mother actually read all her short fiction and would counsel her on whether people in her hometown uh, would find it offensive. Uh, and we have a reading from that right after the break. Uh, Dr. Ben, can you stick around with us for a little bit? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Beautiful. So we're speaking with Dr. Ben Alexander. He is the author of Flannery O'Connor, Good Things Out of Nazareth, The Uncollected Letters of Flannery O'Connor and Friends. After the break, we'll be speaking more with him. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. O'Connor Notes a Story has elicited criticism from her mother, she was vigilant in reading her daughter's stories with an eye to the offense they might give locally. O'Connor recounts, by contrast, larger perspectives after having read a philosophic work by an influential priest and journal articles about Catholic literature. Milledgeville, 19 September, 1959. Dear Betty, while I have a sad tale to tell, the Partridge pageant will never see the light of day, at least not for many years. I should have known better than to start with it, but I went careening through like a hoop. Milledgeville had one of those things in 1953. Its sequicentennial and the Saturday before the festivities, a fellow named Stembridge shot the chairman of the pageant committee and another lawyer and himself. Of course, it was the greatest thing that had happened to Milledgeville since Sherman passed through. When my mother read it, the story, she was horrified, declared it would cause the families of those people suffering and so forth. Maybe when I am 60 years old and all the families are dead and gone, I will reach my withered paw into the trunk and pull out this, but for the present, it is just one for the pot, a nest egg. I almost sent it on before I showed it to her, but I thought she might as well see it. Then I knew by her reaction it probably would hurt those people, so there's nothing to do but forget it. Maybe I can give somebody else the grass bag. I put your notes up with it, but I don't have the feeling to correct any of those things now. Euthyphro was a dumb fellow whom Socrates met outside of the courts of law and questioned on the nature of justice. Euthyphro was going to court to sue his father. This piece of erudition is not native to me. I have just finished Gardini's The Death of Socrates, which if you would be interested in, I will send to you. Thanks very much for sending this at review. It is certainly a lousy magazine. Do you want it back? What did you think of the article? I think the messenger is quite wrong to criticize him for putting it in the Saturday Review. As I pointed out to the old soul, until Catholics realize that their linen is sometimes going to be hung on the public line, they will not get in better condition. I think he confuses journalism and letters, and his remarks on fiction and poetry don't indicate that he knows what is being written. Even if there are not so many fiction writers, there are some very fine Catholic poets. 
but his other pronouncements I can accept vigorously. Tuesday, Miss Betsy Lockeridge is to come down here and interview me for the Sunday supplement. You will probably find me tricked out in the personality of the Georgia farm girl or good earth-loving author or something equally horrendous. Hoping to remove such possibilities, I have prepared a list of questions with answers typewritten, which I shall hand to her to incorporate. Here, Betsy, I have done half the work myself. Isn't Betsy a very unlikely name? Billy Sessions discussed his entire welt smelts, spelling mine, with Peter, who is supposed to have plenty of bedside manner. I can visualize the scene. Modified cheers. Flannery. Hey, welcome back to I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello, hello. And today, we are speaking with Dr. Ben Alexander. He's joining us from a barrier island somewhere off the East Coast near North Carolina. He is the editor and somewhat author of the book Flannery O'Connor, Good Things Out of Nazareth, The Uncollected Letters of Flannery O'Connor and Friends. And in fact, you just heard a reading of one of Ms. O'Connor's letters from 1952, I want to say. As always, read by Shanna Van Volt. Music, of course, by international anthem recording company this week it is junius paul dr ben coming back uh, one of the things we talked about before the break actually was that uh, flannery o'connor actually had some pretty serious health problems she would die i believe age 39 of lupus and of course her father uh, had lupus as well uh in between uh the break actually jeremy and i were talking about a very famous photo of her with her peacocks and on crutches and stuff did her illness and her ailments influence her writing and her outlook on the world Yes, they, they did, but th- one of the things you'll, you'll see there's not an ounce of self-pity or uh, feeling sorry for herself in any of the letters. In fact, she's quite comical about it, you know. Uh, she's got some rather scathing comments about what the medicines do that, that she's taking. Didn't one uh, of them disintegrate her bones, if I remember correctly? Right. She's got a letter to Ward Allison Durant, who was dying also, her friend at Georgetown who had emphysema, uh, and they were both, uh, you know, kind of had this uh, ebullient sense of humor as they faced their final ends. And how it affected her writing is that uh, she had a death sentence, and she knew she had a death sentence, and so she, uh, you know, desperately tried to get her second collection of stories, Everything That Rises Must Converge, done before she died and she was very very uh vigilant in how she spent her time Uh, a lot of people for example uh wanted her to be have lunch with james baldwin and since it was the 60s to demonstrate or make some sort of public pronouncement about her role in civil rights and she declined and a lot of people don't understand that. And she, uh, she declined because she simply did not have time uh, to do that kind of thing and get her work done. She was put on earth to write those stories, like Dante was put on earth to write that comedy. And she had her own divine comedy. And uh, so she knew that her days were numbered, and uh, as a result, she worked assiduously to get the stories done without one bit of self-pity. Uh, it, it's very uh, bracing to read. I can't find any place, any, any time where she feels sorry for herself. And she was going through tremendous pain uh, in, in some of the most uh, you know, trying of circumstances. 
Did they ever make the TV show? I, I remember that in one of the letters they, it was mentioning, I, I believe it was a good man hard to find. They were going to serialize it. Did they, I know they made the Houston movie of Wise Blood. Did they ever serialize that? Uh, well, I'm told, and I have met a producer uh, from a group called Good Country Pictures who has the rights to produce all the stories. I have this in a footnote. In, in my book, uh, to produce all the stories, uh, and I, I know he's working on it, and there was really a very interesting rendition of uh, the Lame Show in a first that was done on Danish television, which you can see if you call it up. You, I, I, no, I don't think you can see it on YouTube, but someone sent it to me, but it, you know, it's available. But um, uh, there have been efforts. Uh, you know, there was an excellent version, and it's well worth just the price of uh, watching it to see the 19, I believe, 75 version of uh, The Displaced Person with a very, very young Samuel Jackson. Hmm. Oh, uh, wow. That. Interesting. It, it is, it is, I mean, he's got to be all of, like, 21. Huh. Uh, he's, he's playing one of the farm workers uh, in that story. Uh, that's filmed, filmed at her house in, uh, in Georgia. So, uh, no, there, there hadn't been a, a lot of uh, uh, television done that I, I mean, I know this, as I said, I know this person who's, who's working on it, and I met him. Maybe I, I interpreted that from a footnote, and just my brain's sometimes a little slow. Um, I'm actually going to Flannery's farm this summer with my sister. She lives in Concord, North Carolina. I don't know how close that is to where you're at now. But right. what we do, literary trips together. Uh, I think I did, though. I think I yanked that from your footnote and possibly mixed up the information, which I do all the time. So, Going back to, to uh, that reading, though, that we played just coming after the break and, and why I asked about her health, you know, one of the things, Flannery O'Connor seems to have led a fairly secluded life, yet she, in her stories, shows a, a very uncommon grasp on what's going in the world, what's going on in the world around her, and relations between human beings that someone suffering from a serious illness you know sometimes i would think might not be able to do she also in the letter obviously that we we played um coming out of the break cared deeply about what people thought about her stories you know having her mother read them and seeing if they would give offense to people can you talk a little bit about how her letter writing connected her to the world at large, and, and was that a way that um, she was able, in a sense, to travel outside her house when her illness prevented her from doing that? Yeah, it, it was her. It was her mode of travel. In fact, she has a letter. That, I'm paraphrasing this. Uh, it's in the habit of being a very moving letter. She says, uh, "Being sick at home, like I am, a lot like I am, like I am, is worth three trips to Europe." Uh, and what she meant, what she meant by that uh, is that she, well, for instance, her friend Bill Sessions, uh, you know, he he was a Fulbright scholar in uh, in Germany, and he she would they they had a long correspondence, and then she had uh, she was friends with Maurice Edgar Condru, whose letters are in my book. You know, he was the great French uh, uh, translator of Faulkner. He he, he introduced the uh, sound of the fury to the French. Uh, during the darkest days of World War II, well, she, he came to Milledgeville and called on her, stayed in the farmhouse. Uh, and they have 
a lovely exchange of letters. As did Mr. Giroux, Robert Giroux came down there. So her letters are uh, kind of replace uh, what you would normally do if you weren't so sick. Uh, her letters are, are her travel. And people, uh, a steady dream, uh, stream of people would come to see her, and they would, they would have long conversations about what was happening in the world, you know, things that were going on. She was a, uh, you know, she, uh, Flannery O'Connor, as I, I make known in the first couple of stories, actually witnessed uh, Russian collusion, or what she would call Marxist collusion. Uh, she would say there's no such thing as Russian collusion. Oh, and Yadu? Yeah, yeah, I do. She she would say they're Russian novelists, and there's Marxist collusion, mm-hmm. and there's a fundamental distinction lost today in the in the semantics that we use. Uh, if you're talking about collusion, you you should you should Flannery teaches us that you should talk about ideological people who are committed to Marxism. Russians are people that live at a, in a geographic part of the world, and uh, they write novels and do other things. Uh, so she, she was uh, a very, uh, very what I call a patriot writer, like Faulkner. Uh, she was comfortable in her, uh, in her, uh, in her role as a citizen, uh, and she, uh, she didn't like uh, to be involved in uh, overt political movements, but she certainly knew what was going on. And she was broadly supportive of uh, Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement. And if I remember correctly, she also was a big supporter of John Kennedy, who was a, a Catholic like her. Yeah, she, uh, this is a fascinating letter uh, that kind of has something to do, there's a little clue there about Irish uh, identity. Uh, she writes Rosalind Barnes, who was a friend that was a missionary, and she talks about how she had been slapping down idiocy or rejecting idiotic uh, opinions about John Kennedy's can- uh, candidacy in 1960. And then she says something to the effect, uh, finally we got a real president, uh, which I think is really interesting. No, she was, that was a letter she wrote to Father McCown. And I think what, they, what that letter may mean is that they saw a common Irish connection with the Kennedys, O'Connor, and McCown. Uh, I think that was what she was speaking of. She doesn't really talk much about her Irish identity uh, at all, except in a, in a few of those letters. It's interesting that you mentioned seclusion, Jamie. Um, there, there's actually another essay that was published. I think it was based on a talk she gave to a, a Georgia Writer Society, actually condemning this that that myth of the of the isolated and secluded writer. Um, and, and she sounded like. She re- she really liked socializing and, and being part of a community um, when when she could, but uh, also in that talk she talks uh, about being identified as a Southern writer. Well, primarily as a, as a Georgia writer and and beyond that as as a Southern writer. And uh, I I thought that linked up to what you were talking about. Maybe it was during your break, Jamie. You were saying you didn't you didn't uh, have a lot of O'Connor in your reading. No, no, she was grown up overseas. Yeah, and it was, she was definitely not taught on the East Coast either. Okay, and and when you read her now, this to Jamie, is it uh, is it that beyond your scope? Does does it seem like it should be uh, alienated from the rest of what you were taught? 
No, I mean, I, I just think that, you know, other authors were uh, chosen. Um, you know, we read more of um, Ambrose Bierce. We read H.H. H. Monroe, of course, because he was a Scottish writer, uh, known as Saki. And uh, I think the American writers that we tended to read um, were not Southern. You know, I think there was a prejudice against Southern writers in general that right now is only kind of starting to dissipate. And maybe Dr. Ben can, can speak to this a little bit because, of course, you taught uh, letters, I'm assuming, in the South for your, your career. But She did hate being identified as Southern writer, too. Right. And, I mean, we've also talked to other people on the show from the South who hate being identified as, as Southern writers. Is there a, a kind of antipathy toward toward? Being a Southern writer, I, I guess, you know, kind of being an expat, Dr. Ben, I have to be honest with you, I, I never thought anything of it. I've never considered myself, you know, anything. But uh, was that something that, that was, a, um, I guess, an anchor on, on people? Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things you have, there's a wonderful thing that she wrote. Uh, I believe it's in uh, Mystery and Manners, or her group of essays, and she said, this is really profound. She says, the only thing that keeps me from being a Southern writer is that I'm a Catholic. And the only thing that keeps me from being a Catholic writer is that I'm a Southerner. <laughs> and and uh, there's, there's, that's a wonderful paradox. And one of the things that she, this particularly true in uh, The Habit of Being, I think it's well into the book. She says, well, I was on a panel and I reluctantly accepted the label Southern writer. And what she is... Um, trying to resist is what has become the caricature of Southern writers. For instance, right now, uh, where I'm staying on the barrier coast uh, near Charleston, everybody, everywhere you look, they want to claim that they're a Southern writer, you know, <laughs> that they're the new Pat Conroy or something like that, or that they're, you know, the heir of William Faulkner or something like that. But the greats, okay, O'Connor, Faulkner, they resisted the term. The way to understand them is they, these are American writers with a distinct regional history. Uh, and uh, O'Connor did not like, uh, you know, these so-called schools, regional schools, uh, people, uh, Southern writers, New England writers. Uh, she, she did not want to be tarred with that brush because there was a certain freedom that she wanted to embrace. And she didn't want to be uh, caricatured in a certain sort of way. She didn't want to be, for instance, linked with Harper Lee or Carson McCullers. And she wanted to do something, and she did. She wanted to do something different than the great Dixie train coming down the track, as she said, and that was William Faulkner. She wanted to do something different. So she resisted being labeled in, in, in a way like that. I have a very wonderful writer friend in Virginia who's from Georgia, M.L. Jackson, who is a brilliant writer, who is also, uh, you know, she's a Georgian, but she is also a person who has much larger uh, world interests and philosophic views, and she doesn't want to be pigeonholed in a certain sort of way. So uh, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that uh, afflicts all uh, writers uh, uh, from the South, particularly coming after Faulkner, uh, Walker Percy, for example, he did everything he could not to be known as a Southern writer, and he succeeded in a way because his fiction, is, is demonstrated in this book, his fiction is is uh, is really uh, has more of an international reputation as uh, as part of the great body of existential literature. Do you think she would be considered 
differently today if she had been identified primarily as a as an Irish Catholic writer? Uh, well, I mean, the interesting thing is that they, they don't know much about her in Ireland. I mean, I've been there to talk about her. Uh, I, I don't know that it, that would have helped because um, uh, when I did when I did speak about her in Ireland, I have this in my in my preface. I mean, they the people there were were absolutely astonished that there was a, a, an American Catholic who was comfortable with the faith. Not only was comfortable with it, but embraced it as an artistic postulate of their uh, of their uh, of their system of belief and their their artistic vision. And uh, so, I think uh, if O'Connor uh, at 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 a, at a minor level, okay, is is a Southern writer, but she is also like Faulkner, a global writer, and, and we're seeing that today with the, with the reach of her fiction. I mean, uh, there was a conference on her, at, uh, you know, two miles away from the Vatican in two thousand nine. Uh, and and people from all over the world were there listening to talks and uh, like United Nations style uh, in translation. So um, I don't think it helps uh, if she uh, if it helps you understand her. Okay, she she could be labeled Southern, but she's much bigger than that. She is assuredly one of our great American writers. We only have a couple of minutes left. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Ben Alexander. He is the author of a new collection of Flannery O'Connor's uh, letters, Good Things Out of Nazareth. It is available right now from Convergent. Dr. Ben, just to wrap things up, uh, can you give us some final thoughts on why you think Flannery O'Connor is, as you just said, one of the great American writers? Because uh, she's... Um, uh, she's one of the, one of the few American writers who is at ease with her faith, yet you, she is so ecumenical and so non-judgmental that she's not clubbing you over the head saying you have to accept uh, this faith. She's leaving it, as she says, to be a mystery to be pondered. So that she, she's one of the few writers in, in all of American literature who is... Um, a card-carrying, dogmatic believer, but she, she, the great virtue that she has is she, she's an exponent of charity uh, and mercy, not judgment. She's not going to say, you have to believe this way, you have to look at the world the way I look at it. She's saying, this is the, this is the way I look at the world. You can, you can take it or leave it, but I, I give it to you, and I'm not going to judge you if you don't see the world I do, the way I do. And, and I think what's really remarkable is most of the people that love and revere O'Connor are not religious. Yeah. Well, we again have been speaking with Dr. Ben Alexander. Dr. Ben, thanks so much for spending time yeah, with us. We really you. appreciate amazing. it. Uh, for more information... Well, it's great, listen, it's a great joy to talk about O'Connor. Oh, well, we really appreciate it. For more information on what Dr. Ben's doing, his website is benjaminbalexander.com. You can also find more information about the book we've been discussing today, which again is Flannery O'Connor, Good Things Out of Nazareth. It is the uncollected letters of her and her friends. That is at convergentbooks.com or crownpublishing.com. Dr. Ben, once again, thanks so much for spending 
good time with us today. We really do appreciate it. Thanks, and we're thank you. We're also going to give you and Ms. O'Connor the last word, as is traditional. We're going to play out with one final reading. Thanks so much, Doctor Ben, and happy holidays. Thank you. Happy holidays to you. Thank you. We'll see you guys next time on I-94. From all of us, I'm Jamie Trecker. We'll see you next week. Milledgeville, Georgia, 5 January 1960. Dear M. Kondro, the book arrived this morning and I am delighted with it. I can get the gist of the introduction on one reading, but it will take me several to know what it is actually about. Do you think that if I perfect my French on La Sagesse dans la Sang, I will speak French like Hazel Motes or Mrs. Watts, Leona, if I ever get to Paris. I might not then be received in the best society. My editor at Farrow, Strauss and Cudahy's sent me the NFR bulletin. ESNC should be sending you the violent Barrett away in a week or two. I hope that you like it as revised and I certainly hope you will translate it. I notice, if my French does not deceive me, that in the introduction to Wiseblood you mention the new book and indicate that the great uncle in the new one bears some resemblance to Hazel Motes' grandfather. He does, though he is a less puritanical figure and more the real prophet. We appreciated your Christmas cards, my mother the farm and me the birds. It has been very warm here, with the result that the peacocks are ahead of the season and are strutting all over the yard. Usually this does not begin until late February. You said once that I should send a picture to Gallimard. I don't know if that is still necessary, but I enclose one which I have just gotten around to having taken and you can send it if you like. We are expecting to see you at the Easter vacation. Again, my very great thanks to you. I am going to read every word of La Sagesse dans la Song. Yours, Flannery. Georgia, 18 July, 1960. Dear M. Condreau, Well, here are the pictures that came out, and as you can see, they are very pale and anemic, which is the case with most pictures I take. However, I think the ones of you sitting on the porch are good if you don't mind straining your eyesight to see them. We certainly enjoyed your visit, and next year when you come, we will try not to present you with so many ladies who talk so much. Mrs. Freeman paid us a second visit a week later, and I see she never runs down or out of conversation. I am much relieved that you are going to look over that gentleman's translation of my stories, as I was not very confident it would be a good translation. Now I won't worry about it. Who should call this morning from Princeton but Mrs. Gordon Tate herself? She is going to visit an aunt in Chattanooga and will come by here on the 26th, arriving on your bus. I hope that no stray dogs will show their faces during her visit and that we can keep down all animal incidents, etc. The cards you sent us from the station in Atlanta was edifying and we hope you'll continue to keep good company, read good literature, and keep us posted on your comings and goings. We'll expect to see you next year, moreover. Our best, Flannery. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Dr. Ben Alexander, the editor of The Letters of Flannery O'Connor, Good Things Out of Nazareth, out now from Convergent. This episode originally aired on December 1st, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.